Good morning again, everybody. So good to see you all here. My name is Dan Halleck. I'm the lead pastor here. If I haven't met you, I'm so glad you are here. And uh, please do fill out that connection card when you get a chance. We'd love to, to get to know you. Um, just a reminder, today after the service, uh, we have our monthly Meet the Leaders time. And so we do this last Sunday of the month. Uh, if you're new here or if you would uh, just like to ask some questions to the leaders or get to know more about the church, uh, please hang out. We'll be in the lobby and uh, we'll have name tags on. And we would love to, to talk to you for five or 10 minutes and we'll have coffee and stuff and so please join us for that. So this week you guys as you all know is a big week for the the church as uh, we head into Holy Week here today with today being Palm Sunday. Uh, inside your bulletin you'll see the announcement about the Good Friday service on Friday. We'd love for you to join us. This is normally about an hour long. It's uh, at 6 p.m. There's no child care but it's family friendly. It's for the whole family and we encourage you to come as a family and uh, Gary Williams will be bringing the message and we'll take the Lord's Supper together and uh, just thank the Lord for going to the cross for us. And then uh, next Sunday is Easter Sunday, one service at 10 a.m. Uh, please be praying about who you can invite to, to join us for that. And uh, man, they're gonna be doing some really great stuff in children's ministry too. And so um, have your kids invite friends too because it's gonna be a really fun day. So thank you guys for being here. Have you ever... Uh, if, you are a, if you are a Christian, have you ever been persecuted because of your faith in Jesus? <laughs> have you ever been made fun of or discriminated against or threatened or, or maybe even physically hurt uh, for being a Christian? Christian persecution is broadly defined as any hostility experienced from the world as a result of one's identification as a Christian. This week I was reading about some different countries and I read about a communistic country that for the better part of the last decade has been labeled the least free country in the world. Uh, in order for a person to participate in religious activity there, he or she has to agree with four laws. First, you cannot be a born again Christian. Second, you must be loyal to the government and no one else. Third, you must not carry the Bible outside of your home or church building. And fourth, if you encounter any missionaries, you must report them to the police. And the reward is three months wages. Any idea what country that is? Or North Korea? Good guess. The country is called Eritrea. Eritrea. It's a country in Northeast Africa. It's right on the Red Sea. And how sad it is that a country so close to where Christianity started is now one of the places where Christians are persecuted most. Eritrea. Um, let's just take a minute and pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in Eritrea. Dear Lord, we, uh, we pray uh, for our brothers and sisters in Eritrea today as they wrap up their day. Um, I pray, God, that your name would be glorified there in the church there, that you would use um, your gospel and your people there by the power of your Holy Spirit to make people born again, to show the world the love of Christ, that you would give courage and strength to those being persecuted for their faith. Pray for the multiplication of Christians, God, and the perseverance of the saints there, and uh, that through their perse uh, persecution and suffering, um, you would multiply your kingdom, your name would be glorified, 
and you would be saving people from all people groups to glorify your name and to bless all the families of the earth in Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name, amen. If you keep up with with global news or if you read um, some world history, you know it's not unusual for followers of Jesus to be persecuted for their faith and sadly it's not unusual for followers of Jesus to be persecuted by their own government. Uh, This should not surprise us though, since Jesus told us, uh, said this would happen to us. Luke 21, 10 to 17 says, Then he, Jesus, said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. So come follow me. (laughs) It's not in that context, but Jesus doesn't sugarcoat what it's like to be a disciple, right? He doesn't make it sound like, oh, it's going to be your best life now. That's not what he says. Um, It didn't take long after Jesus returned to heaven for his followers to begin to be persecuted by the world. In the past few weeks, as we've been reading through Acts, we've been in Acts chapter three, where the Christian leaders, Peter and John, healed a crippled man uh, in the name of Jesus as they were going to the temple one day to pray. Now, most of the citizens in Jerusalem knew this crippled man because he'd been begging for money on the streets his whole life, and it says that he was over 40 years old. So when everybody saw him, that he was suddenly healed, everybody knew it was a miracle, and they were astonished. And hundreds and hundreds of people, we read, uh, began to gather around this man, and and, uh, and Peter and John who was with him, and Peter began to explain to this crowd how they had done this, how they'd healed this man. And Peter said that it was actually Jesus Christ of Nazareth who healed this man. There's one God and three persons, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit, and we read about all three persons in this passage. And, and Peter told the crowd that even though Many of them had made fun of Jesus and had even helped murder Jesus a few months earlier. God the Father vindicated Jesus and he raised him from the dead. And he told the crowd, many of you saw this with your own eyes. That's incredible. Eyewitnesses right there in the crowd. And and after establishing their guilt for killing God, Peter says, so turn to this God whom you've killed. Turn to Jesus because he loves you and he will forgive you. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Can you imagine hearing that? Turn to this one that you just killed because he loves you. This same Jesus whom they killed would now forgive them. Jesus would give them eternal life if they trusted that he truly is God, if they trusted him to save them from their guilt. 
Uh, and Peter said that uh, Jesus is, remember he's talking to a Jewish crowd here, and so he's, he, he tells them Jesus is the promised Savior whom Abraham was talking about, whom Moses was talking about, who Samuel and Isaiah and all the prophets uh, were talking about hundreds and thousands of years before us. So Peter says, listen to your own ancient prophets and trust in Jesus. And he says, if you don't trust in Jesus, then just like Moses said, God's wrath is still on your head for your sin, and you will be destroyed. And up to this point, Peter and John and the rest of the Christians had a, had a good reputation in Jerusalem, and they were generally liked by non-Christians. However, that would begin to change, as we're going to see in today's passage. So if you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to Acts chapter 4, verse 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, we'll... Uh, Put it on the screen so that you can follow along that way. And if you don't own a Bible, let us know. We would love to give you one. Before we read today's passage, uh, let's just ask God to help us now. <laughs> Dear Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we uh, thank you for giving us your word, the Bible. Uh, thank you for allowing us to live in a country where we can assemble as Christians and read the Bible together without fear of persecution by the government. Please help us not to take this freedom for granted. Help us, God, to use our freedom to, to bless others, to encourage our brothers and sisters of Christ who don't have the same freedoms. Lord, we just want to pray for Christians around the world who are being severely persecuted for their faith right now. And we ask that you would please give them supernatural courage and protection Please be with them in a special way and redeem their suffering, God. Redeem it for their blessing and, and for your glory, God. And, and um, for their persecutors, God, we pray that you would grant them repentance and faith in Jesus uh, so that they, they would be forgiven and have eternal life and, and ultimately bring glory to you, God, now and forever. And so... Um, as we open your word, we ask you to help us now, Lord. Uh, we know that we will not get anything out of this sermon time unless your Holy Spirit ministers to us. And so we confess we are sinners in need of your mercy and grace. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to fill this place and fill our hearts in a special way. We ask that you would give life to the spiritually dead so that they might see you with eyes of faith for the first time today and live. And please energize those of us whom you've already made alive and yet are still totally dependent on you for everything. Please, Lord, protect us now from evil. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at Acts 4, 1 to 22 this morning. But we're going to take a little bit at a time and we're going to start with Acts 4, 1 to 4. So let me read that. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. 
So while Peter was explaining the, the miraculous healing of this crippled man to this massive crowd of Jews who'd gathered around them, the Jewish leaders came too. They, they wanted to see what this ruckus was all about. And verse 2 says that the temple priests and the temple captain and the Sadducees were greatly annoyed. They were annoyed right now just like they had been annoyed when Jesus used to attract crowds in the temple. And what offensive thing were they doing in the temple? They weren't being unkind to anybody. They weren't treating anyone badly. No, all they were doing was using their words to tell people about Jesus. Verses 1 to 2 says that Peter and John were speaking to the people. They were teaching the people. They were proclaiming a message to the people. That all happens with spoken words. And what was this message they were speaking, teaching, and proclaiming? Well, it says it was the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only son Jesus to die for the world so that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish for their sin but will have everlasting life. And the gospel is a message. It's a message that we speak, that we teach, and that we proclaim to one another and to the uh, non-believing world around us. The gospel is not something that we do. The gospel is something that Jesus has already done. Okay? So the, the gospel is a message. That's why it's called news. It's something that happened in the past. It's the message of what Jesus has done to save undeserving people from sin and death and Satan and hell. And wherever this message of Jesus is not shared with words, the gospel is not proclaimed. Okay? But this gospel message is good news that we want to tell other people. Because uh, Romans 1.16 says that the, this message is the power of God to save people. So it's through telling others about Jesus that others hear about Jesus. And it's through hearing about Jesus that they can then believe in Jesus. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So God rescues people from their sin when they believe the good news of Jesus spoken to them or written to them, communicated to them. And when Christians speak the gospel, some people are annoyed Right? So people are greatly annoyed. That's what the passage says. And other people are filled with joy because they believe Jesus. They have eternal freedom and life in God with God for the first time ever. And, and specifically in today's passage, the people who were annoyed by Peter and John's gospel preaching were some of the main Jewish leaders, most notably a a group of people called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were very influential politically in the Jewish nation. They were uh, the theologically liberal Jews of their day. They did not believe everything in the Bible was true. The Sadducees uh, did not believe Bible passages that talked about angels. They didn't believe in a future day when God will judge the world. The Sadducees especially did not believe in the idea that people can be resurrected from the dead. And so when we read in verse 2 that the Sadducees were greatly annoyed that this crowd was actually listening to Peter and John, it was because what were they preaching? That Jesus died but was resurrected from the dead. 
And since they had a lot of political power, the Sadducees just arrested Peter and John and had them put in jail. And it was too late in the day for Peter and John to go to court, so they had to stay in jail overnight. And the next day they would stand before the Sanhedrin, which was uh, the supreme court of the Jewish people. The Sanhedrin was a group of the top 71 leaders of the Jewish nation. And at that point in time, the majority of the Sanhedrin uh, was, was uh, Sadducees. In this case of Christian persecution reminds us that many people are going to be offended when we tell them the message of God's love and salvation in Jesus Christ. And sometimes those offended people might have some type of authority over us. But just as many, uh, some people are going to reject the good news of Jesus, the passage also says that many people will not respond negatively. Verse 4 says that many of those in the crowd who heard the gospel believed. Praise God. And Luke reports here that uh, Peter's gospel, uh, that, that after he shared the gospel that day, the number of men who believed in Jesus came to 5,000. So, so in the course of, I mean, we're only talking a couple of months here, uh, when the church in Jerusalem grew from about 120 believers to suddenly 5,000 believers. That's phenomenal church growth right there, okay? Um, in ancient times, they often only counted the heads of households, which is why it says here 5,000 men believed. So, so for all the men who believed, obviously it, it, it surely represented family members who also believed as well. And so even in the face of, of growing persecution, God was multiplying his church rapidly, and he does it the same way today. Um, when the Holy Spirit grants repentance and faith in Jesus to lots of people at one time, making them born again, we call that revival. Uh, revival is not something we can make up. It's not something we can manufacture because we can't make anybody believe the message of the gospel. We can't make anybody trust in Jesus. Spiritual revival is entirely the work of God. And as God's gospel is proclaimed by Christians, and as the Holy Spirit of God breathes his, his life-giving breath onto the souls of sinners, lost people are born again as they trust in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and when the Holy Spirit does this, at the same time to a lot of people, we call that revival. I hope that God would do this today, you guys. Here. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you want to see that. I do. I want to pray that God would do revival through this church and in our church. Don't you want to see that? I, I want to see our community glorify God and have life and freedom in Jesus Christ. I want to love our neighbors the way that Jesus has loved us. Let's, let's pray for opportunities to share about Jesus and for courage to speak up. Because we want to see God glorified as he blesses and redeems and restores the lives of formal rebel, rebels like us. And you guys, next Sunday is Easter. And it's one of the only days of the year when many non-Christians will attend a church if somebody invites them. And I just encourage you to pray about that. Invite friends and neighbors to join us next Sunday. Let's fill all the empty seats in here. And let's have to put out other seats, okay? Um, pray for your neighbors this week. Because we're going to have baptisms next week. Um, we're going to preach the gospel. We're going to lift up the name of Jesus. And uh, we want you here, as well as many who don't believe, 
We plan to be here unless Jesus comes back first. Now, let's keep reading here what happened to Peter and John in verses 5 to 8. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. Let's stop right there for a second. Keep you in suspense. So after a night in jail, Peter and John are brought before the 71 members of the Sanhedrin. Did you ever have to give a speech in class? Or maybe somehow you got out of that speech in class? That's pretty nerve-wracking. Put yourself in their shoes. This would be nerve-wracking to testify. This is like testifying before Congress, knowing that most of Congress is against you. That's what's... That's what's happening here. And what's interesting is that all the members of the Sanhedrin here can't deny that Peter and John performed a miracle because there was no other possible explanation for the crippled man's healing. And so the rulers don't ask Peter and John if they performed a miracle. Instead, they ask Peter and John by what power or name did they do the miracle. And in verse 8 it says, Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. And whenever you see the phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, you know something good's about to happen, okay? And in this context, what does it mean that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible says that all Christians, true Christians, are filled with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit enters them and lives in them the moment that they trust in Jesus. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 3.16, the Apostle Paul tells Christians, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? He lives in you? So in one sense, all Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit because He lives in us. Uh, But in addition to this meaning, we read in Scripture about other times when the Holy Spirit moves inside a Christian or a group of Christians in a special way. The Spirit gives the Christian a fresh experience of his power and presence. It's, it's kind of like an anointing of the Holy Spirit. And Scripture often describes this as the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's when the Holy Spirit works in an especially powerful way in Christians. And sometimes we wrongly think that the Holy Spirit's special filling of a Christian means that the Christian's going to all of a sudden do lots of unusual things like speaking in tongues or seeing visions or performing miracles. And the Holy Spirit can do those things when he fills a, uh, a Christian, but those behaviors are in no way required evidence that a person is filled with the Holy Spirit. And today's passage is a perfect example of that. Here, the, the Holy Spirit fills Peter. Peter doesn't do any of those things. But Peter does do something remarkable here. The Holy Spirit fills Peter with God's power to speak to the Sanhedrin with supernatural boldness and courage. This is supernatural boldness and courage. Let's read what Peter says here in verses 8 to 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? 
Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, so here Peter is. He's filled with the Holy Spirit of Jesus. He's calling to account the rulers, the very rulers who crucified Jesus. And Peter's supernatural boldness here is not due to his own clout or his own wisdom or his own education. Peter's message to the Sanhedrin and the power with which he delivers this message is entirely the work of the Holy Spirit in him, okay? And if you know anything about Peter, you know that his boldness here had to be attributed to something outside of himself because only a few months earlier, Peter had denied even knowing Jesus. And he did that, did that three times. And as Peter now stands before the same rulers who ordered Jesus' death, what do you think is going through his mind about what's going to happen to him? This is what happened to the guy who followed me, or who I follow. What's going to happen to all of his followers now? Peter must have known that they could very well do the exact same thing to him, flogging him, beating him, tying to, him across, to a cross and letting him die. Well, it is incredible here to see Peter does not even waver this time. Peter really was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. It is actually the only thing that can explain the radical switch in P uh, Peter's behavior. Uh, Peter had actually talked to Jesus after his resurrection. Peter had touched Jesus' resurrected physical body, felt the nail prints in his hands. Peter ate meals with Jesus, we read, in the upper room and on the beach. And as Peter went for a walk with Jesus along the beach, Jesus forgave Peter for denying him three times. And then Jesus restored Peter to his place of leadership among the apostles. And, and look at Peter now. Okay, he is the one in the hot spot now. But he stands with full confidence in Jesus. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and Peter boldly preaches the gospel of Jesus to these 71 men in the Sanhedrin. This is an incredible scene. And what's even more incredible here is he doesn't sugarcoat anything. Okay? Peter says a lot of things here that surely offended the Sanhedrin. Uh, Peter, he's not being rude to them, he's not being unkind to them, but he is boldly telling them the truth. And he asserts that they, the rulers of the Jewish people, are not on the same page as their God. He's saying, you're wrong. He, he, he tells them that they are not on good terms with God. He says, you crucified Jesus. You crucified God. But God the Father raised him from the dead. Okay. So uh, Peter, Peter asserts here also that Jesus is the Christ, which is a word that means Messiah or Savior. Jesus is the promised one spoken of by the prophets in the lineage of all of the Sanhedrin here. And he reminds the Jews that they are the sons. You're the sons of the prophets. You should know that Jesus is the Messiah. 
And then Peter asserts that even though the, the Jewish leaders and the Romans pronounced Jesus guilty, they, they said this is a bad, evil man. He, he deserves to be crucified with robbers and thieves. That's not how God the Father felt. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, and he pronounced Jesus innocent in his sight, and he exalted Jesus in heaven. And then Peter says that, that even though these rulers tried to get rid of Jesus, guess what? He's back, right? Jesus is now back from the dead, and with his power, he healed this crippled man standing next to us. And then he says that Jesus is the true cornerstone of God. Even though the rulers in the world rejected Jesus as a useless stone, said this one's no good, God the Father has made Jesus the cornerstone of God's people. Jesus is now the stumbling block that destroys all who reject the grace and mercy of Jesus. And then in verse 12, Peter asserts that he, he keeps going. He asserts there is salvation in no one else but Jesus. Only Jesus saves people from sin and death and hell and from God's judgment and wrath. And that's because only Jesus is God. Only God could do this for us. Only God can reconcile humanity to God. And he says there's no other name by which man must be saved. So in other words, um, Jesus is the only true God, and Peter's saying the gods of all the other religions are actually not real. They don't exist. Only Jesus is God. That's what he's saying. Now, now, Peter's words would have been extremely offensive to the Sanhedrin, just as they are offensive to many today in 2018. Um, but the Sanhedrin would have been offended mainly by Peter's assertion that Jesus is the God of the Jews. And the Sadducees specifically here uh, were irritated by Peter's assertion that Jesus physically rose from the dead. But get, hear this, the Jews would not have been offended by Peter's statement that there's only one God. The Jews believed that. They were monotheistic. Now, the Romans around them weren't. They were polytheistic. They believed in many gods. Um, but the Jews simply didn't believe and still don't believe that Jesus is the one true God. And it's the same way in many countries and cultures around the world today. It's actually not offensive to claim that there is only one God. The debate, rather, is about who that one God is. Now, in much of the Western world, including America, it is offensive to many people to claim that there is only one God and that Jesus is God. Um, our society doesn't really like it when people make exclusive claims about anything. Uh, our, our culture doesn't like the idea that there actually is truth that exists. Uh, instead, our culture likes to say that truth is whatever you want it to be. And this way of thinking manifests itself in all sorts of different ways in our society. Now, ironically, whenever a person says that truth is whatever you want it to be, then he or she is actually making an exclusive truth claim. <laughs> so in reality, everybody believes in objective truth. There, some of us just don't want to admit it. We don't like the idea of that. Now, what's more important here for us is to ask this question. What is the truth? That's the real question. What really is the truth? And those of us who follow Jesus believe that he is the truth because we believe that he is God. 
we believe that Jesus' word, the Bible, tells us the truth because it is spoken from the God who is truth. Um, we believe Jesus when he says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus didn't say in compliance with our culture, I am a way. He said, I am the way. And he didn't say, I am a truth. He said, I am the truth. And he didn't say, I am a form of eternal life. He said, I am life. And Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. So if a person doesn't like that Christians teach that Jesus is the only God, then their problem really is with Jesus' teaching about himself. That's why we always want to turn people to Scripture. Right? Well, we want people to wrestle with who God says he is. Right? Jesus, Jesus didn't lie to us to tell us what we want to hear. Jesus spoke the truth to us so that we might actually know the truth and be freed by it. Okay? Jesus is the only Savior and Lord because only Jesus is God. That means that only Jesus has the power to remove guilt from us. And only Jesus became our sin on the cross and killed it for us. What other God has ever condescended to the level of a slave and been beaten to a pulp and hung on a cross to become the sin of the world to put it to death? Nobody. Only Jesus. This is why Jesus is called the Lamb of God. Only Jesus could do this. This isn't something even the best person in the world could do. Only Jesus took our punishment with him straight to the grave because he loves us. And only Jesus rose from the dead. Only Jesus granted God's forgiveness and life to everybody who's united to him through faith. Only Jesus. There is, no, there is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's the message of Jesus. That's the message of Jesus' followers. And when Peter stands before the Sanhedrin and he preaches this to them, they are speechless. Okay, let's read how they responded in verses 13 to 17. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name." Okay, so the members of the Sanhedrin were astonished because they saw the uh, same spirit-filled boldness in Peter and John that a few months earlier they'd seen in Jesus. And they were amazed because Peter and John were not scholars like the Sanhedrin. Peter and John were commercial fishermen, okay? They had not gone to seminary. They hadn't gone to Sabbath school. They spoke like men... Um, who had done that though, which is incredible. And they had even more of an authority than these guys uh, who were in the Sanhedrin. And, and the Sanhedrin doesn't know what to, to make of this, 
But the reality is that, that Peter and John were able to speak this way because they actually had been with Jesus. And Jesus taught them the word. Okay? And verse 14 says that the Sanhedrin looked at the healed man standing next to Peter and John, and they couldn't deny this miracle. Uh, they had just heard the words and seen the power of the living God through Peter, and they were speechless. 71 men, the most prominent leaders in the Jewish nation. And so they excused Peter and John so that the council could talk in private. And the same thing that happened at Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin happens now. The Sanhedrin comes to a decision, and the decision is determined primarily by fear of the people. Okay. Remember, the Sanhedrin had it. They didn't like these guys. And they had the authority to take Peter and John to the Romans right then and get them crucified, just like they'd done with Jesus. But this time, the people in Jerusalem like Peter and John, and so the Sanhedrin doesn't want to do anything to upset the people. And so the Sanhedrin decides, let's just give them a warning, all right? Uh, let's tell them they can't speak anymore in Jesus' name. We don't want anybody else converting to Christianity. And notice what they're trying to do. They're trying to shut up Christians, right? What is the gospel? A message that we speak. It is the message that they speak that they don't want the Jews to hear. Because if Christians stop speaking about Jesus, then people won't hear about him and be saved by him. Stop the Christians from speaking, teaching, and proclaiming Jesus, and it will put an end to the movement. Now let's read verses 18 to 22. So they called them and changed, or charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The rulers call Peter and John back into court. They order them not to speak or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. And look at how Peter and John answer them whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, they stand before the 71 Jewish rulers and say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I'm sorry, I cannot do that. Wow. Peter tells the rulers, we can't not talk about Jesus. We're just telling others what we've actually seen with our own eyes, what we've actually heard with our own ears. We would be lying if we told people that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And at this point, the Sanhedrin does not know what to do. Verse 21 says that they threatened him. They threatened him again, and then they, they eventually had to let him go. But the Sanhedrin was scared of the people all of whom, it says, were praising God for the healing of this crippled man in Jesus' name. You know, if we are followers of Jesus, then we must follow the example of Peter and John here, and so many others in the Bible and in history, who feared Jesus more than people. 
We must never deny Jesus in order to please any earthly authority. We cannot do what we know is sin in order to make people happy. Instead, we must stand with Peter and John and say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I can't, I can't stop telling others about Jesus. I can't be quiet about my God. Not only does the Holy Spirit inside of me compel me to share this gospel message with others, but my Lord, Jesus, he, told, he commanded me to do it. <laughs> he told me to do it. Romans 13 tells us to be subject to the governing authorities over us because God is the ultimate authority who puts them in place over us. And the reason it says that God puts authority over us is to serve and to protect us. Well, now, when authorities stop serving and protecting people, they're no longer doing the job God has given them to do. And if and when any authority over us orders us to deny or to disobey Jesus, then we must disobey the lower authority in order to obey our ultimate authority, who is God. Okay? And this applies to us at all different stages of life. God puts parents in place to serve and protect their children. And if a parent ever tells a child to do something that God says is evil, then that child should obey God instead of his or her parents. God puts public school teachers and administrators in place to serve and to protect the children in their classrooms and schools. If a teacher or administrator or coach ever tells a student to be quiet about Jesus or stop praying, or, do, or to do something that's evil, that child should disobey them and instead obey God. And then expect you and your family to be persecuted as a result. God puts husbands as head of their families to serve and protect their wives and their children. If a husband stops doing that, if he leads them to do something that God forbids, wives and children should instead obey God instead of their husbands. Husbands and fathers, we read in Ephesians 5, are supposed to serve their wives and kids like Christ served the church by dying for her. God puts pastors and elders in the church to serve and protect the Christians in our care, but if a pastor or elder or any church leader ever tells you to do something evil, you must obey God instead of that church leader. And God puts police and the government in place to serve and protect its citizens. But if a policeman or a politician or a government itself orders you ever to stop talking about Jesus or to do something that you know is against God's word, you must obey the Lord rather than the government and expect to be persecuted for your faith. Last week I had a conversation with a staff person at one of the public schools who I didn't know was a Christian, but... They come out of the woodwork once you show up, and once the pastor shows up. They're like, oh, yeah. They're more comfortable talking about it for whatever reason. But he told me that there have been several times when students have come to him in need of help, and he has opened the Bible with them and shown them God's thoughts on their situation. And this man said he knows the schools look down on that, but he also knows that it is wrong to withhold Jesus from people if the Holy Spirit is compelling you to share Jesus with them. You hear that? We're ultimately accountable to God. Our earthly authorities are here just for a little while. May we never allow our fear of government or of institutions 
or of leaders or of losing our jobs and money or careers to cause us to deny Jesus. This is what Jesus has to say about it. Seek first the kingdom of God. Make that the first priority in your life. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else is gonna be added to you, okay? So as long as you put God first, as long as you seek to honor him and obey him in everything you do, then don't worry about what earthly things you may lose in the process. Because God promises to give you everything you will need to live a life that's pleasing to him. Ask God to give you supernatural courage and boldness, like we read about in this passage, to share his gospel of great news with the world. And this week, you guys, let's ask God to help us identify people in our community, our neighbors, our workplaces who need to hear that God loves them and that Jesus is back from the dead to save and to restore their lives forever and bring them with you next week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, this word. God, we need your Holy Spirit. We need your power in our lives. Uh, We on our own are just... We're going to run the other way from you and from people, and we need your Holy Spirit to give us supernatural courage and boldness to tell the truth to people in love, to love others. Um, God, we pray for the persecuted church, those Christians, God, who are experiencing persecution in much more intense levels than we are. Um, and help us to remember to keep them in our thoughts and prayers because our prayers make a difference and that is one of the means you choose to, to use uh, to encourage the church through our prayers. Um, help us, Lord, to fear you in a good way, way more than we fear people and the opinions of people or what people can do to us. You are God. In Jesus Christ, we are eternally safe our greatest enemies of death and Satan and hell have already been defeated. Death is now the gateway we enter to experience the greatest joy and blessing with you we've ever known. You've taken the stinger out. And so may we live in light of that reality and trust that if we seek you and follow you and rest in the gospel of grace as we do that, you're gonna provide for us what we need. Show us your will this week, God. Put people in our lives we can love and witness to and hopefully invite to celebrate you next summer, or next summer, next Sunday on Easter and next summer too. Um, we love you, God. Help us uh, to worship you now as we sing this great, this great hymn. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.